So, for anyone that wasn't here last week, or for one reason or another didn't get to watch the sermon, we have started going through the book of 1 John, um, and so today we have 1 John chapter 2. Before we start, however, if you guys will join me one more time for a word of prayer. Dear God, we thank you for this day, we thank you for just this great time of worship that we just had, we thank you for all the truths that we get to just declare over and over on Sunday morning, and hopefully every other day about you, about your son, about his finished work for us on the cross. And we pray at this time, Father, that you speak uh, not just through my message, Father, but ultimately through your word. Uh, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All righty. So uh, we started off last week talking a little bit about the historical context as well as the importance of the historical context of 1 John. We talked a little bit about how uh, uh, John is writing this in order to deal with some false teachers that were arising among this network of, of um uh, home churches, right? And so we talked a little bit about that, and we talked about the importance of getting the historical context of 1 John. However, something that we're going to talk about, being that we're in the second chapter, is also the importance of literary context when we're reading scripture, right? Not only does it matter for us to grab the culture of the time, not only does it matter for us to figure out who's writing the book we're reading, but it also matters that we read each and every single verse found in that book in context of the author's other writings, in John's case, uh, assuming that it's the Apostle John that wrote 1 John, his gospel, and also the immediate literary context that, is, that are the verses that follow the verse we're reading and the verses that precede the verse that we're reading. And so, uh, in order to quote uh, 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 preacher Paul Washer on 1 John chapter 2, I think he put it really well, he said this, uh, throughout this whole book, you're going to find that John is going to tell you that if you do certain things and you don't do certain things, then you're a Christian. Now, if you isolate verses that speak in this way, that may make you think that the way in which you become a Christian and maintain your Christianity is by doing certain things and not doing certain things. But that wouldn't be true Christianity. So every time that we read John saying that if you don't love your brother, then you don't know God, that doesn't mean that you start to know God and begin their relationship with God as a direct result of you loving your brother. And there ends the quote. So for example, when we're going to read John and our topic today uh, that we're going to get to in a little bit has to do with this. When we read John saying, you know, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you don't know Christ. If you do ABC, you're in darkness. If you do, what John isn't saying is, oh, you need to have a checklist of all these things for you to do to earn God's love, right? That wouldn't make any sense. And now a lot of people have actually taken verses even out of 1 John to try to imply that that's the case. To try to say that all that God cares about is living a moral life, that all that matters in the final equation is how many good things that you did, but that's not at all what John is talking about. And so before we begin the rest of our reading today, we talk about our uh, uh, topic for the day. We're going to read for the sake of context, keep in mind not just what we learned last week, but also what John reiterates in the first two verses of this chapter. And so he says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And so everything we're going to talk about today, is the, the literary context of it that John just puts right at the beginning of, of, of this chapter is, hey, everything I'm going to say happens in light of the fact that you need to be placing your trust and hope in what Jesus did, not what you can do. And so as we go into this, today's topic is sanctification and testing ourselves to see that we are in the faith, right? I don't know about you guys, but one of the things I struggled with the most growing up was just constantly doubting my salvation, right? I, I lost track of the amount of times that I would watch 
a sermon online, I'd be feeling convicted about something, and I would pray the sinner's prayer for like the 152nd time, and I'd be like, now this is the time, we got it. And then like a week later, I'd be like, I don't think I'm saved anymore. And it was a whole, a whole ordeal. And so what John tackles in, in, in this chapter is mainly some of the markers that we can look at in order to figure out whether or not we are in the faith, right? Not that they begin our faith, but these are things that if we are truly in the faith, we are going to be exhibiting. There are things that we're going to care about. There are things that we're going to do. There are things that we're not going to do, things that we're not going to care about. And that's what John is going to be talking about. And so uh, in the interest of, of reading uh, in context, we'll continue with the next five verses. Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, John has said a lot here that wouldn't fly in the face of a lot of modern Christianity. Right? And, and not only modern Christianity, but our culture as a whole. Right? I, I, most of us, I mean, I know I was, right? not even by like, teachers necessarily, but by my peers, by the things that I watched. We were all taught, hey, you know what? Listen, you know, we, we've heard slogans like, hey, love doesn't judge. Or hey, the only one that can love me, the only one that can judge me is God. Right? Ultimately, all of these going back to one sentiment, and that is that what's true for you may not be true for me. Right? We hear, hey, listen, you and I have a completely different way of doing things, uh, and they may be completely different all the way through. The result may be completely different, but that doesn't mean that what I'm doing is morally not equivalent to what you're doing. Right? We'll hear, hey, all standards are equal, is ultimately what we hear. Whether we're talking about uh, Christianity, whether we're talking about other religions, whether we're talking about all roads lead to Rome, every single religion takes you to heaven, whether we're talking about even within Christianity, there's no such thing as Christianity done wrong. Everyone that calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. You just take them at their word. There's no markers we can look at. And that's completely antithetical to what John is saying. And so increasingly, when we're taught this as a society, what we fail to realize is that there's objective things. Right? God, being an objective God, doesn't just say, oh, well, you know what? You can do you, and I'll do me, and what's true for me is God may not be true for you. That's not how Christianity works. And so, actually, I'll, I'll explain it this way, which is my favorite way of trying to explain this idea uh, of relativism and why it doesn't work. Right? So, we got a show of hands. Who here has seen the movie The Incredibles? Okay, a lot of us, most of us. If you guys have seen the movie, you'll remember uh, that the main villain, right, Syndrome. Now, what was his ultimate plan, right? After we see an intro in which Syndrome is trying to help Mr. Incredible uh, do these, go on these superhero missions and do these things, uh, and Mr. Incredible is like, hey, you don't even have powers, you're getting in my way, get out of here. And thus starts his villain journey, right? And by the end, he has Mr. Incredible trapped, and he has this to say when he's revealing his diabolical plan, right? Because what he's done is he's created these inventions that can mimic powers, that can do these things, and here's what he says. My robot will emerge dramatically, kill some people, and just when all hope is lost, Syndrome will save the day. I'll be a greater hero than you ever were. I'll give them the greatest heroics they've ever seen. And when I'm old and I've had my fun, I will sell my inventions so that everyone can be superheroes, so that everyone can be super. And when everyone is super, 
no one will be. Right? And this is my favorite way of explaining it because it makes sense in the context of the movie. Of course, that's, that, that's his ultimate goal. Right? He's saying, once we make everyone superheroes, by definition, no one will be super. Because everyone will have the same capabilities, everyone will be able to do the same things. In other words, what we might be able to say is that when everyone's moral standards are good, none of them will be. Not that none of them will inherently be better than the other, no, no, but as far as we are concerned, we're not going to see any of them as being good. They're all equal, right? In other words, if I can, there we go. In other words, when we accept all standards, there is no standard. Right? When we say, well, everyone just has a different truth, there is no the truth, everyone just has their own way of getting there, there, oh, there's no way that I could condemn anything that anybody is doing. There's no way that I could condemn anything that I'm doing. If I did that, I might not be fully inclusive to people. If I did that, uh, I might hurt some people's feelings. If I did that, what we end up doing by mistake is making there be no standard. And we all know what's happened throughout history when there's no standards, right? Horrible atrocities, horrible things. That we get to, and even in countries where that doesn't happen, you still end up with a very confused populace, right? We end up in a situation where we don't know what's right and we don't know what's wrong. And when it comes to our Christianity, I mean, what matters more than where you're going to spend eternity? And so that's the last place where we want to have any kind of confusion. That's the last place where we want to have no standard. And so instead of being scared of God's standard, what John calls us to do in this chapter is to embrace it and to embrace it for our own good, right? And so in the verses that we just read, the first standard that we see from John is... We know that we know Christ if we keep his commandments, right? And so before we, we get around to this, so we just said at the beginning, for context's sake, John, he just reiterated it in the first two verses. What John is not saying is that you're just a good person and you got to have it. That's not what he's saying, right? And so what is he saying? Well, I have a question for you. I want you to picture, let's say that there's a person uh, that you just really don't like. It's not for any particular reason, right? It's not that they're mean to you. In fact, in this scenario, this person goes out of their way to be nice to you. But something about them you don't like. Whenever you have the opportunity, you spurn them. Whenever you have the opportunity, you do things they hate. Whenever you have the opportunity, you talk badly about them. And now let's say in the same scenario, one day you pass out, you hit the floor. As it turns out, both your kidneys have failed, right? You wake up in the hospital, the doctors inform you of what happened, and they tell you, hey, we didn't know if you were gonna make it, but thankfully, praise God, there was a donor readily available. You're like, okay, well, who was it? And through that door comes in that person that you've hated, comes in that person that you've insulted, comes in that person that you just absolutely dislike. How would you feel about them now? More importantly, how would you feel about yourself now? Right? When you look at them, you'd probably feel horrible. You'd say, man, I, I don't know, like, First of all, you'd be confused. You'd say, well, I can't believe you've done this for me when, when I've been such a jerk to you. I can't believe you've done this for me when, when I've hated you all this time. But what would proceed from that? How would you feel about them? How would you behave toward them moving forward? Right? You'd probably love them. You'd probably stop, stop talking badly about them. You'd probably sing their praises every time they walked into a room. And ultimately, you would want to do things that show your love to them. And so when we talk about God, sometimes we get this, this wrong-headed idea that, oh, you know, I'm only following God's commandments, and I want to make it to heaven. But that's not the point. What John is saying here is if you're actually saved, if you're actually a Christian, his first standard is out of love for Christ, 
you're going to want to keep his commandments. Because Christ was that person that walked in that you hated. He was that person that you reviled. He was that person that you didn't want. And he was still willing to save you. In fact, here's what Paul has to say about that. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the key words, right? While we were still without strength. Well, while we were still sinners. Are there other verses talk about while we were yet God's enemies? He was willing to do this. And if we would do that for someone who, let's say, I don't know, gives us one of their own kidneys, how could we not do that for the God that gives us eternal life? And in particular, for the God who gave us eternal life in spite of the fact that each and every single one of us, me included, you included, all of us, hated him. We wanted nothing to do with him. Right? The Bible's clear. From, from the womb, we were sinners. Right? We were liars. We were, we, we were just... So you can see even children, right? Even children, so innocent, and children will lie about things. Or they, like I said last week, they'll break something in the house and they won't tell you. A ghost did it. Right? They'll hurt their, their sibling and be like, I have no clue what happened. He just fell down. Right? Ultimately, at every opportunity that we get, we revile God. And so in, in the Apostle Paul's own words, what is to be our response to this? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul isn't saying, oh, you know, uh, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, that maybe you'll make it into heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're doing this as a reasonable service. The idea being, God already paid your debt for you. God already paid the price. God already did what you yourself could not. And so as a reasonable service, one might even say, as a thank you, you would want to keep his commandments. After all, how could we not? For a God that was willing to do so much for us, how would we not be willing to make him happy? Why would we not be willing to do the things that he asks us to do? I mean, it, it only makes sense that if he gives us eternal life, the other things he asks us to do are also for our own good. Right? If he was willing to look out for us for our ultimate good, why would he not be willing to do that every step of the way there? And so it only makes logical sense as a reasonable service that we would give ourselves to follow his commandments. And so let us continue. So John uh, continues. He says, He who says he is in, the, is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so, again, one of the things that Paul Washer mentioned in their quote at the beginning that we're now seeing is John is saying, Hey, if you don't love your brother... There's something wrong. If you say that you're a Christian and you don't love your brethren, notice he doesn't give a qualifier, right? He doesn't say, if you know, you need to love your brethren that treat you well. Or you need to love your brethren that are willing to do the same for you. Or you need to love your brethren. Just love your brethren. And so what kind of love are we talking about, right? Because like we said, in a culture of relativism, people define love all kinds of ways. Right? People will do things in, in which to one person it seems really loving, to another person it's horrific. They don't know why they would do that. And so how does the Bible define this kind of love? Uh, it's, uh, uh, in John uh, chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy 
Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And so how is John defining uh, in his gospel, right? Which you, you kind of see the themes of John as a writer uh, bleeding through here. How is he describing love? And how is Paul then also describing love here in 1 Corinthians? The love that we are to have for people is unquantifiable, right? There's no amount of it that we can gauge from, like, oh, I, I need to meet, you know, just this mark in the meter, and there, I've loved my neighbor. The love that we are meant to have for people is meant to be like God's love. God's love for you, actually, is meant to be bottomless. Regardless of how many times people fail you, regardless of how many times they cheat you, regardless of how many times they revile you, regardless of how many times they insult you, you're expected to love them. And God's not asking you to do something, like I, like I, like I say repeatedly throughout my sermons, he's not asking you to do something that he hasn't already done for you himself. Not only when he saved you, but even think about it. Even as a Christian, you fail God every day. I know I fail God every day. Right? We lie. We ourselves cheat people. We ourselves do things that, that, that God hates, that, that, that he just, they're abominable to him. And despite of that, God continues drawing us. He continues giving us opportunities to repent. He continues saying, hey, just come to me again. I love you anyway. And so how could we then being forgiven everything that we've done, everything that we will do against God, turn around and say, no, no, I, I hate you. Get out of here. You've lied to me one too many times. No, listen, I, I don't really like you. I don't like the way you treat me. I don't want to talk to you anymore. What hypocrites would we be? <laughs> right? Like, we, we can't do that. I mean, God doesn't do that to us. How then do we see fit? Are we greater than God? We aren't. And so if God's going to do that for us, we can't turn around and not do the same for somebody else. It, it, it would make ultimately no sense. Right? And we can see actually John's love for his brethren as he continues here in the, in the next couple of verses. Ooh, we went to the beginning of the PowerPoint. But as he says in the next couple of verses, uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, he says, oh, it would appear it stopped working. Uh, but once we get there, it says, uh, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. And so ultimately, when John is writing to the individuals in this church, even though, remember, He's trying to go against false teachers and people that are, are, that are putting dissent everywhere. He doesn't write to them in contempt. He doesn't write to them saying like, man, you know what? How dare you depart from the things that God has taught you, right? He doesn't go, hey, you know what? I can't believe this. I'm done with you guys. I'm not writing you any more letters. He writes assuming the best of them. He writes according to what Paul is talking about and what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Like, I mean, look at this. You, we, I've written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. He's assuming they know the Father. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. 
He's saying, hey, I'm here to encourage you and to love you. And even if there's people in your community who have given into this false teaching, I'm here to lovingly admonish you and tell you, hey, come back. And he doesn't do that with hatred. He doesn't do that uh, in a combative uh, way with them. He doesn't do that insulting them. John goes out of his way to show the people he's writing to love. And so if we are to follow in John's example, if we are to understand what that second principle or that second standard is, that we know that we know Christ if we love our brethren, we need to know what that love is. So my question for you, and it's kind of funny, I was asking the youth this, uh, this morning because it just so happened that the uh, gospel project, uh, Sunday school material, uh, matched a little bit of what we were talking about. Um, thanks. Uh, oops, sorry. Yeah, so it, it, matched, it matched what we were talking about. My question for you would be this. I want you to right now picture who is that one person that goes here, maybe that goes to your previous church, so there is someone that you know that doesn't go to church with you, but is a Christian who you just can't stand. Who is that one person that has gone out of their way to hurt you, that has gone out of their way to be mean to you, that has gone out of their way to put you down? Who is that person? And what's the last thing you've done to show them that you love them? It's hard. Right? And it sounds counterintuitive. That's not what we want to do. As people, we want to pay them back. We want to, to do the things to them that they do to us. But that's not what we're called to do. If we know Christ, if we know the love that has changed us, that has forgiven us, then we are to turn around and forgive them and love them too. You guys have heard it plenty of times. Uh, I, I think I've said it. Maybe Aaron has said it. Uh, it's, it's a pretty common catchphrase. That is that you don't have to like your brothers or sisters in Christ, but you do have to love them. And so if we are to know that we are in the faith, we need to see this love springing forth, right? Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that, man, if I struggle to love my brother, am I not saved? No, that's not what that means. The question is, when you don't love your brother and Scripture calls you out, when God calls you out, when you hear it from the pulpit, is your immediate reaction, God, I'm sorry. You're right. I need to love them. Or is your immediate reaction to reject it, to say, no, I know what's best, God. I know what's best for me. I know what's best for this person. And so I'm not going to do that because that's what the true marker is. Right, what we're not talking about is just being moral people. No, we're talking about if you truly are saved, and these are things that should be springing forth from you organically. It, it should be things that are coming forth from your life as a direct result of the work that Christ is doing and the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart. Even if you struggle with it, my question would be, what is your heart posture toward these issues that you struggle with? Is it to please God? Is it to love God and love others, as Jesus says? Or is it to have your own will be done? Because if the second is the case, it might be time to examine yourself and your faith according to what John is saying. And so, uh, as we move on to our final standard, uh, we're going to read the next couple of verses. Uh, 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And so our third and final standard is that we know that we know Christ if we do not love the things of this world. Now, this is another verse that also gets taken super out of context, 
right? I've heard it all. Like, whatever people don't like when they're trying to be legalistic, those are the things of this world, right? I've heard it all from, you should never watch a PG-13 movie because would God approve of PG-13 movies? Like, irregardless of the context, right? I've heard that. I've heard from, you shouldn't read any book that isn't the Bible or a Christian devotional book because if you do, you're not redeeming the time and you're loving the things of this world. That has nothing to do <laughs> with these verses, right? And that's ultimately what we like to do as people, right? We like to find verses that we think suit our lifestyle and to suit the things that we want. And if we isolate them, like we said, we don't read them in their proper context historically and with other verses, it's very easy for you to start like applying them to other people. Like, you know, don't do X, Y, or Z thing that I don't like or you're not saved, ooh, right? <laughs> but ultimately, that's not being faithful to scripture. And so notice the things that John himself defines as being of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so he gives us very specific standards, right? And as we're talking today, standards, John is very specific with these. And so notice what these things do, right? Pride. Why is pride bad? Why is it a thing of this world? Pride prevents you from seeing your own sin and helplessness before a holy God. If you walk around saying, I'm the cream of the crop, I'm good, uh, if there's anybody who's going to be sitting uh, at, at the head of, the bank, of God's big banquet table, it's going to be me, you know? If you walk around like that, like the Pharisees did in Jesus' day, the odds are your, your faith is placed in the wrong thing. Your faith isn't faced in Christ. In fact, your faith is placed in you. If you ignore what John says at the very beginning of this chapter, what he said in the first chapter that we read last week, if you completely take Christ out of the equation and you just say, I'm going to live a moral life, that's prideful. And the reason why it's bad for you is because you're your own God at that point. Now, what's the next thing that he says? He says, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. Why are these things bad? Why are these things of the world? Why are these things antithetical to Scripture? Well, the lust of the eyes and flesh reduce your fellow human beings from image bearers of God, deserving of dignity, to mere piles of flesh that exist exclusively for your own viewing pleasure. When we, give our, when we give ourselves over, whether it's to pride, whether it's to the lust of the eyes or of the flesh, when we're not, A, loving God the way that we should in humility, and when we're not, B, loving our brethren, loving our neighbor because we're too busy lusting after them, lusting after their flesh, lusting after the things that belong to them, if you find yourself in that place, as tough as it may be, it may be time to ask yourself, what is my faith placed in? Is it placed in Christ? Is it placed in me? Is it placed in nothing? And now, what are we not saying? Like I said before, what I'm not saying is that Christians are perfect and that there's no way that we ever fall to pride. There's no way we ever fall to lust. There's no way that we ever fall to... It's not what I'm saying. Just like anybody else, we fall to pride all the time. There are times where we fall to lust. We look at people to lust after them. And there are times where maybe we fail. We fall to the sin of pornography. We fall to, to greed. We fall to, we fall to all these different things. So what is John saying here? Once again, it's about our heart posture. Do you love the things of the world? Or do you hate them and merely tolerate them? When these things come your way, when you fall into these sins, what comes to mind, is it just, I'm going to continue living the way I want and it doesn't matter? Or is it, man, I can't believe I've done this against my God. I can't believe that I've done this 
against my brother or sister in Christ. I can't believe that I behaved this way toward an unbeliever. Is that what comes to mind immediately? Because if it isn't, that according to John, that may be cause for worry. And so as we continue here, uh, it's, it's a lot of verses, but just bear with me here. He says, little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And that's how he finishes his chapter. Now notice what he's talking about. What's the word that he keeps repeating over and over and over? Abide. Abide. Abide in the things that you've been taught. We talked about it last week. Abide in the things that you've heard. Abide in the things that you've seen. Abide in Christ. Because ultimately, none of us can keep these standards perfectly. Every standard that we've talked about today, try as hard as you, as you may, you can't keep them perfectly. You're going to fail. Your friends are going to fail. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are going to fail. I will fail you. Aaron will fail you. We're all going to fail. But the good news, and the good news that John starts off this chapter with, and the good news that he finishes this chapter with, is that these standards don't have to be kept perfectly by you. They were already kept perfectly by Jesus Christ. And so as we go into God's promise, if we trust and abide in Jesus Christ as he is revealed to us in Scripture then God promises us eternal life. And so my question for you this morning is, when was the last time you tested your faith? As you heard these things today, did a few of them maybe make you uneasy? Did a few of them maybe give you confidence? As we read here in, in the end, in the last couple of verses actually, if you look at what John finishes with here, in, in verse 28 he says, And now little children abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So what we're not talking about today is that each and every single one of us needs to constantly be worried and say, am I saved? And be like me at like 14 every other week praying the sinner's prayer. <laughs> All right, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is when you look at your faith, when you test your faith, do you see the Holy Spirit working in your life? And do you test yourself often? Because it's important that we do so if we are to have that confidence. As it turns out, if you don't test yourself according to God's standards, odds are that you will be like me at 14, always unsure as to whether or not you're saved, always being worried, am I going to heaven? Always being worried. But if you trust in God's word, you read through it, if you test yourself according to it, not in a legalistic way, but looking at your heart posture before a holy and righteous God, 
you will have that confidence. Because it won't be placed on you, confidence will be coming from Christ and His finished work for you on the cross. Thank you for tuning in to Star Church's sermon. We truly hope that the sermon edified you today and brought you closer to the Lord. For more information about Star Church, visit our website at stargbchurch.com. Once again, that's stargbchurch.com. If you would like to visit our church, our address is 4925 State Road 142 North, El Dorado, Illinois, zip code 62930. We now pray that God will bless you as you enter the mission field and bring his word to the world. And as always, we'll see you next time here at Star Church.